This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from Publishers Weekly's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is away this week. On today's show, Paul Lynch discusses his new novel, Grace. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about Canadian bookseller Indigo's possible move into the U.S. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD Bookscan. Uh, nonfiction. Uh, I'm going to start off with that because we only have, really, two debuting titles. One is uh, Steven Universe, Art and Origins. That's at number 11. Not a review for this, but we do have this as the first book to take fans behind the scenes of the groundbreaking and boundlessly creative Cartoon Network animated series Steven Universe. So that's from the uh, jacket copy. And then at number 15, we have Bill Nye, the science guy, everything all at once, how to unleash your inner nerd, tap into radical curiosity, and solve any problem. That's at number 15, and in this one, Bill Nye, the New York Times bestselling author, kind of just really teaches you how to tap into that inner nerd to help you look at uh, things that are seemingly unsolvable uh, and uh, help you develop critical thinking skills and create change using his quote unquote everything all at once approach that leaves no stone unturned so that's that now uh, got a little bit more on fiction we have uh, a new number one House of Spies uh, by Daniel Silva and this is uh, this is his thriller award uh, finalist uh, uh, 17th novel featuring Israeli art restorer and spy Gabriel uh, Alon and in this Gabriel has little time for art restoration, as it turns out, as he has now become chief of Israel's secret intelligence service. We say the introduction of new characters uh, in this, the 17th novel, in particular, uh, master spy Christopher Keller, keeps the story fresh. Readers will eagerly await the next installment in uh, this deeply fulfilling series. And then we jump up to number 12 to get our next debut, Secrets of the Tulip Sisters by Susan Mallory. And this is from the New York Times bestselling author of Daughters of the Bride. This is a tale about the problems with secrets, the power of love, and the unbreakable bond between sisters uh, from the jacket copy. We don't have a review of that. Uh, we do have a review of number 17, Watch Me Disappear by Janelle Brown. We say almost a year after failing to return from a solo hiking trip, Billy Flanagan has been presumed dead. However, her teenage daughter, Olive, refuses to believe it. Uh, we say that Brown, uh, who's the author of All We Ever Wanted Was Everything, um, this novel is more than just a page-turning suspense story. It's a gripping family drama that focuses on the choices we make and the ties that bind us to the ones we love. 
Kathy Reichs at number 20 with Two Nights. We say that Sunday night, the star of this fast-paced series launched from bestseller Reichs retreats to isolated Goat Island near Charleston, South Carolina after an injury ends her police career. There she meets a former foster father, police officer, Perry Beaumont, uh, who entices her out of seclusion by asking her to look for a teenage girl whose wealthy mother, grandmother believes she was kidnapped by a cult. An explosive finale at the Kentucky Derby seems designed for the big screen for this novel. Number 22, Final Girls by Riley Sager. Uh, this is the heroine of Sager's uneven thriller debut, where uh, five college friends spend a weekend in the Pennsylvania woods in the remote Pine Cottage, where knife-wielding maniac kills everyone but her. We say that Sager does a good job of building suspense, but some readers may find the book's themes of casual male power and female subservience after trauma deeply unsettling. Finally, Linda Castillo, Brown, uh, Down a Dark Road, a Kate Burkholder novel. Uh, this is with Joseph King, whose plight is the focus of Castillo's uh, ninth novel featuring Painter's Mill. This was after 2016's Among the Wicked. Uh, so King has escaped from prison two years after he was convicted of shooting his wife dead. Uh, bulletins go out. People are looking for him. And uh, we say in conclusion that, as always, uh, Castillo skillfully sets each scene, compelling readers to fear the raging stream, sense the tension in a room, and yes, even smell the manure of the fields. And uh, that's what we have on our bestseller list. And I'm Mark Rotellum. This is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we have Paul Lynch, uh, who will be calling us from Dublin to talk about his new novel, Grace. We'll be right back. I'm Matthew DeBoard, author of Return to Glory, the story of Ford's revival and victory in the toughest race in the world. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Rose Fox is away this week. Today, we've got Paul Lynch on the line. His new novel is Grace. Hello, Paul. So glad you could join us from Dublin. I'm delighted to be here. So this is your third novel, and this one takes place in Ireland of 1844 during the Great Famine. So set the scene for us. Well, the book opens with a very dramatic scene. Uh, 14-year-old Grace Coyle, who becomes the heroine of the novel, sort of wakes up to find herself being pulled out of her bed by her mother, who um, swiftly drags her outside, cuts her hair off and tells her, you are the strong one now. We're in the autumn of 1845, and it's a, it's a particular uh, it's a particularly important point in Irish history because that was when the the, the, the potato uh, crop failed and when the famine began to, to hit. And so uh, I suppose at this point, the characters don't quite know this, but, you know, they know that times are getting tight and the mother is, is sending her off. Um, so that's essentially the beginning of what becomes this five-year epic Odyssean journey for Grace. And her brother, Collie, who's a 12-year-old, uh, he's two years younger than her, he decides to run off with her. Um, and so that's that's the opening of the book. So it's Grace Cole, and as you said, she's a 14-year-old girl who's sent off by her mother with her brother. Is it Collie? Collie, yeah. Who's two years younger. Now, you just said that her mother had cut off her hair. Why is that? And where was she expecting her daughter and her son to go? Well, the son is not expected to run off. Um, but Grace, is her, she, her hair is cut off because... She wants her to look like a boy. Um, she says you won't get the time. She won't get the work that's that uh, that pays well enough if she stay, if she 
you know, gets domestic work as a girl. And so Grace kind of is dressed up in her father's old clothes uh, and uh, sent out of the house. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty traumatic, uh, you know, opening to her, except that she decides to return sneakily um, down the back of the hill. And she kind of whispers to Collie then, you know, do you want to come? And uh, that's that's the kind of decisive thing there. So they are uh, leaving the Urus Hills. Urus Hills? Urus Hills? Urus Hills, yeah. Urus Hills going to Donegal. So uh, tell us about the Urus Hills. Where are they? And, and uh, what is she hoping to find? Or what is her mother hoping that she'll find in Donegal? Well, you know, I grew up in Inishon, uh in North Donegal, and uh, the Urus Hills are, uh, you know, they're they're hills. They're very dramatic. They're full of uh, the Irish boglands. Um, so there's not a lot of trees growing there. They're pretty pretty barren. They're pretty remote, and so it's a very uh, dramatic location. And it's a sort of landscape that informs a lot of my work. Um, the three books I've written now have, in some way or other, found themselves back. Uh, you know, in this part of the world, because there's just something so fascinating about the timelessness and the mythic uh, backdrop of of this type of landscape in Ireland. And so, this is the kind of the mythic backdrop of which Grace and her brother set across when they set off across the mountains. This is where they're traveling across. And you know, I I, I don't think that Grace herself really knows fully what she's getting into. She's just going to meet. She's looking for to meet a man in Bunkrana town who will direct her, except that's not how it goes. Um, the uh, Grace ends up, uh, because she takes Collie with her, they end up being followed, though they don't know this, by uh, a man who her mother is involved with and who may or may not have designs on Grace herself. And he follows them and dramatically intercedes, at which point the real, the, the kind of the long epic journey of the novel kicks off. And tell us a little bit about Grace's character. Mm, it's an interesting question. You know, uh, it's I always sometimes I find it kind of hard to talk about characters because it's almost as if, you know, it's this kind of strange feeling in my mind about, you know, who they are and what they are. But sometimes I think of Grace in terms of a line. T.H. Lawrence had a line in Sons and Lovers that just seemed so apt to me. And the line was her beauty, that of a shy, wild, quiveringly sensitive thing seemed nothing to her. And that's, you know, that's Grace. She's a character of astonishing inner strength and conscience. She has this enormous fire within her and she will do what it takes to survive. And that is a big ask in this book because as the years unfold, the novel takes her, takes the characters through, the, you know, the, the the real dark years of the Irish famine when Grace has to turn to all sorts of things to survive. You know, she becomes... A boy in this book, she will become a bandit. Uh, you know, she, she will resort to serious robbery. Um, she will become a penitent because she she will survive what happens, but she won't. She won't. She will survive it with this enormous sense of guilt and grief for what has been a, a devastating and tumultuous period in Irish history. And so, the book also explores the aftermath of the famine and this kind of vast, uh, unspoken. Uh, thing that existed within Irish culture that people just did not speak of what they went through. And I'm very interested in that. You know, in, in ways, just hearing you describe it and listening to what the uh, to, to, to you describing what the landscape is like, you know, it really does call to mind uh, for me Cormac McCarthy's The Road. 
uh, this kind of post-apocalyptic uh, uh, setting when obviously this is uh, very much pre-apocalyptic. It certainly is. I mean, there's there's a line um, by an English academic who once described the Great Irish Famine as being the equivalent of a small thermonuclear strike upon a country in terms of its impact. Um, and, you know, McCarthy is a writer who... Uh, Gets a name is the name that gets has been brought up. I think with with all my books in one way or another, and uh, you know, like Faulkner and like Flannery O'Connor, uh, that particular strain of of American writing is a big influence on uh, what I do. I like to try and take a certain kind of uh, refined lyricism that is you know renowned of Irish writing, but to marry it with with uh, an aspect of the Southern Gothic. So that's kind of where my writing has found itself over the years. Um, and the road, of course, is, is an extraordinary work, you know. Um, so I can, I can see, I can see why some critics have, have brought that book, uh, you know, you know, associated that book with, with, with Grace. You know, we were just talking about the, your, your, the, uh, description of, of the potato famine era Ireland as being kind of post apocalyptic. I've always, I'm curious about that. What, what did it look like? I mean, I just, I just have this, I just envision these fields of, of rotten potatoes. And what was, what was it like? What was, what was the terrain like? Well, you, you know, the interesting thing is that society went on, you know, like the, the stratification of, of our society was truly enormous, you know, in that way, we, we when we read a, a Dickens novel, we get a sense of the enormous wealth gap. Uh, well, you know, that, that was pretty much how it was. So a character, the, the, the working classes, the lower classes, the small peens, as they called them, who were like the, the, the you know, the, the field workers who had nothing. They, they were literally left to their own devices in many respects. And, you know, there were middle class Catholic Irish farmers who seemed to have not so much trouble in, in, in mining themselves. And this is a, a very strong current in the book of, you know, the have it alls and the, and the have, you know, those who have nothing and, uh, you know, so it's, uh, you know, I, but the book does go through, it follows the period of what's called Black 47 here, which is after the second failure of the harvest in, you know, the autumn of 46. That's when it seems the famine really reached uh, around a lot more of society and pulled a lot more people in. And, and you know, Ireland uh, really, really um, changed. I, I You know, it's hard to describe what it would have looked like you know i but i I get into that in the book you know um but you know and the writing of the book was something that that was really uh challenging and also fearful because i didn't really want to take this on Uh, this is a subject that you know it's a pretty if, if you're irish it's a pretty big serious thing and to write a famine novel you know you're making i think you're making a big statement um as a writer and i i'd spent some time myself just reading about Mao's famine in China in the 50s. Um, just curious uh, about it because there was this was a famine where there was so much statistics, where everything was recorded, where there was so much uh, survivor testimony. And as I was reading this, I began to think about how a lot of these things didn't really exist for the Irish famine. Of course, there is economical and political uh, information, but in terms of testimony, there's very little about that. And I kind of thought, for, first of all, maybe I'll write about Mao's famine. And gradually it dawned on me that, you know, what could I truly bring to a topic like that? And what could I know even? So I, I you know, I gradually realized that, that it was the Irish famine that, that, was, that I was going to have to write about. And what I found intriguing when I was 
coming around to this was the resistance I had. And resistance, I suspect, comes from this deep feeling I have inside myself, but it's probably common to many Irish people, this feeling of kind of just self-loathing, a feeling of um, uh, disgust, shame, these ancient, you know, kind of feelings that are there when you think about the famine. Because we just think of ourselves as this kind of, you know, self-pitying kind of useless kind of race of Irish people suffering. And I I needed to address that. I needed to get inside that. And so uh, as I started the book, I found in Grace this character who was none of these things. She, you know, she was this phenomenal, fiery character who was just going to do what she had to do to survive. But she would carry up me as as the writer of the story, but also the reader into the real dark heart of this story um, that I don't think has actually been written about in this way that I felt like this stopped the, the famine needed a novel that would actually confront the true trauma of 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 the famine to really go inside the the the, the stuff that no one really wanted to take on before um despite my not wanting to take it on I think if you're a writer you've got to follow your fear sure and also as you had mentioned before there there wasn't much discussed at the time and and I think you were saying especially among the poor people there wasn't much documentation were there books, were there writers who had written about the famine uh, previously uh, that that you might have referred to, or perhaps intentionally not? <laughs> well, you know, the intentionally not is an inter- is is actually closer to how I feel about some of it because there, there obviously this is it's an area that has a vast amount of uh, academic and historical uh, study, and there's a huge amount of of evidence. Um, in, in, across many domains, but the thing that I always felt was missing was a kind of testimony from on the ground. There, there, there is a lot of written uh, doc, uh, documentary stuff from people who are from the upper classes, and so they have a particular way of looking at it. But there is a gap in the uh, oral testimony from that period. What what does exist, uh, you know, there, there there was a lot of uh, folklore recorded. Uh, a couple of decades after the famine and, you know, grandchildren, children and grandchildren talked about experiences that uh, they heard from their own parents. And what was interesting about a lot of that, about that was that there were, there was almost complete silence from anyone who had gone through the horrors themselves. Nobody talked about it like World War One, like that kind of t- a typical kind of thing of, you know, it's too much to talk about. So people would say, you know, over in that village, or in that other family, this type of thing happened. But this is, uh, this thing has been noted by, uh, historians that nobody would ever refer to it that it happened in their own family. And so that, that right there is, suggests a sense of shame and avoidance. Um, and so, um, that was, uh, that, that was a big part of, of what I was thinking about while I was writing this book. Another thing is that, uh, you know, Frederick Raphael, uh, the writer, has has a quote that I, I really like, and it's you know the, the novelist is is above all the historian of conscience, and this is an area that's very hard for historians to uh, measure and to come to terms with. This is really the job of the novelist, you know how how as as people when we feel so deeply and we love so deeply and we want to survive. How do we live in a time of enormous crisis? How do we live as human beings during enormous tumultuous events? It's very hard for historians to measure that type of thing. That's the job of the novelist. And that is uh, the area that I wanted to really get inside because 
um, you know, the historian spends uh, much of, of how they work looking back upon what happens. But a character, much like our own selves, can only live by moving forwards. You know, like the, the enormous context for which we now know uh, exists around the famine could not have been known by Grace Coyle, who's 14 years old, has no education and is literally just trying to make do every day. You know, all of that stuff is missing for her. So I have to forget everything that I've read and learned uh, through my research and while I use it to provide you know the enormous kind of context that the, that the novel is set in I also have to jettison all that and forget it and allow my characters to move forward uh, unknowing as we move forward unknowing through our own lives and that's that was the big challenge for me in this novel sure it sounds like a very you know conscious thing that that you're doing as well we're going to take a quick break don't go away Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Paul Lynch, the author of Grace, and we're talking about the novel which is set during the Great Famine, the Potato Famine in Ireland, uh, beginning in 1844-45. Um, and and uh, Paul, we've we've I, we've already talked about. At least I I brought up how in ways the journey of Grace Coyle reminds me of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. But uh, you had also brought up you had used the the word. An odyssey, and in ways, th- this is like an Odyssean journey. Though we don't quite see encounter the Cyclops, she does encounter um, quite a few characters. So, if you could talk to us a little bit about the characters and their relationship to the story, yeah, I mean, like as you say, like this is this is a long, epic road journey, and you know, in that sense, it's also a Bildungsroman. You know, it's a coming of age story because she's fourteen, and by the time we leave her. She is 19 and uh, she encounters all these incredible characters along the road, um, some of whom are hostile to her, some of whom are, you know, uh, extremely useful and some become deeply significant to her. Um, There is a character uh, called Bart who she encounters while she's working on, she's she's, uh, working on a famine relief road. Um, where she's like helping to, you know, dig, dig a road and she's getting paid for this. This was a, a scheme that was brought in by the British government to help bring about relief. And she's working this road and she, uh, there, there is an attempted rape on her when it's, it's discovered that she's actually a boy and Bart comes to her rescue. And what's very fascinating about this character is he's his, he's a cripple. You know, they, they call him a cripple. You know, his, 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 he has a deformity in his left hand that comes, or his right hand that, um, uh, that that uh, as a result of you know it's just a, it's a congenital condition he so he becomes left-handed which is not something that was looked upon uh, very well back in that time uh, and so he's he's a complete outcast like herself and yet they become this incredible energetic you know Bonnie and Clyde almost on the road together this they end up doing all these kind of fearsome things and uh, what's what's uh, I, I mean I should say that of course all the time. Some, something happens to her brother Collie, but he's always with us on the journey. 
because she hears his voice in her in her head. So even if there's two characters, there's actually three. The collie is always with her. He's always commenting on things. He's trying to keep her out of danger. Um, but I, I really love the character of Bart. He's very interesting to me, and he's somebody who um, speaks out. He's the he's one of the real political characters in the book that he speaks out clearly about the politics as he sees it. And Grace is kind of not too interested in that stuff, but he speaks, you know, from, from the point of view uh, of the oppressed and he has these ideas and he's educating her, you know, um, uh, and there, there are also, there are many, there are many people along the way that she meets, you know, um, but uh, it is that, that, you know, in the Odyssey, there's, there's that feeling of, you know, how does he get home? This yearning to get home and for, and for Grace, uh, this is, you know, all she can think about. Um, and yet, there's this uh, very deep sense of guilt in her for what happens to Collie uh, early in the story. So returning home is actually not possible for her uh, in many respects because, you know, to return home without him would be, you know, uh, you know a horrific thing to do. So, um, so, but the returning home when it finally happens is a very, you know, it's a very uh, emotional, I think, part of the book uh, and, and also quite disturbing um, in many respects. There's a feeling of of hauntedness throughout, uh, and and maybe it's in the countryside, or maybe it's the characters, or as you said, their voices. Tell us a little bit about that. Maybe there's two types of hauntings. You know, of course, there's um, there are so, some people think that what are our ghosts in the book, or as I would put them, they're just literally things that Grace sees because Grace is traumatized, and as the story progresses, she carries. Uh, this enormous sense of guilt and trauma and you know she's she's living she's trying to cope and survive but the way she copes with things is you know she sort of summons some of the people she's been responsible for so she ends up you know carrying ghosts around with her that other people cannot see but she certainly sees them and she converses with them and we get a sense of her own guilt and her own conscience through some of these conversations but there is another type of haunting in the book and I think it comes in the feeling comes in as the book later in the book which is the sense of silence that exists in a world that used to be full of people that she moves through this increasingly uh, abandoned quiet countryside that used to be full of villages where people lived and and talked and they were full of animals and there's just now this desolation this silence and it's that kind of idea of the abyss has been summoned you know the the feeling of yeah you know this kind of just this this void of of silence that that all these voices these you know i think you know a quarter of Ireland's population was wiped out uh, um by this famine and um you know, there's just this sense of silence starts to emerge and permeate the book. And I think for me anyway, that's that's the most haunting part of, of the book. Yeah, sure. I mean the the sense of death that's all around you. Yeah. You know, and it's 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 uh yeah, it's 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 a tricky thing to try and write without overwhelming the reader, but you know, it's you know, this it's she you know, she, there, there's a scene where she sleeps in an empty village on on her trek home. And it's, you know, I won't go into it, but it's, it's, it, I think it's quite powerful. Empty meaning abandoned or, uh, or everyone who had lived there had died? Well, perhaps both, you know, uh, you know, it's, the, the surge of immigration of Ireland was truly enormous at this period. And so everybody left, uh, you know, in terms of uh, so many people left, but so many people didn't get a chance to leave. And so we're hearing the silence of, of, you know that the, the empty fields, the empty houses, just the empty villages. The silence is is 
is resonant uh, from from those who left, but also those who were not, who were unable to leave. And what made you decide, or I should say, what what, what inspired you to tell the story through a uh, teenage girl? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. Uh, there was I was I was been interviewed about four years ago when my first novel Red Sky in the Morning came out, and uh, I was interviewed by the Irish Times and. The journalist there said to me, you know, would you write a sequel to Red Sky in Morning? Or did you consider it, you know, because she thought the voice of Sarah in that book was so compelling and she would be so interested to find out what happened to her? Because Red Sky in Morning tells the story of Col Coyle, this man who is ha- kind of hunted out of Ireland after, after he accidentally kills uh, the son of his landlord. And that, that story is uh, told in 1832 and he leaves behind a family. Uh, his wife Sarah, who's pregnant, with, with, uh, who's pregnant, but also they have a two-year-old uh, daughter who is unnamed in that book. And what's interesting is I had no idea of that I would write a kind of sequel to that book. But what happened was I just sat down to write, and I had this feeling inside me of that I would tell the story of a fourteen-year-old girl. And I cannot quite identify that was, but when I started to write and set the scene, and you know, I spent a long time writing the first few pages. I spent months just finding who it is I'm going to be getting into, trying to find the feeling, the song of the book, trying to find the music for how it's supposed to sound. And as I was kind of just getting inside that world, I began to realize that I had a 14-year-old girl in my hands, that she had a mother, that she had a 12-year-old brother, but that there was no father figure. And I think I might be a bit slow because it took me a couple of weeks to realize that this this was the family that were left behind in Red Sky Morning. And... When that happened, I kind of I rebelled a bit and I put the book aside for a couple of weeks. I was kind of said, oh, I don't want to don't want to write this kind of book again. You know, I've done it, and I I ended up going back to it because you know this is the way it works. You have to write the books that are that are given to you, the books you are afraid of writing, the books that terrify you, and uh, that's where that's where the challenge is. You know, you're paralyzed in the fear of what you're afraid of. That's 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 where the work comes from, and so that's how I arrived at Grace Call. And I was actually going to ask about the Red Sky in the Morning and, and, and if there was a connection, and now I know. Uh, but it's also a novel that is about a journey as well. That one from that begins in Donegal and ends uh, in the U.S. with the main character, uh, Cole Coyle, uh, building a railroad. For sure. Or, or working on the rail lines. I, you know, I, I think I'm possibly very interested, certainly for those two books, you know, in that, that kind of, that, uh, that archetype, you know, that it's, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, kind of platform, uh, platform for a novel or, you know, archetype for a novel. Um, that book tells the story, of course, of Carl Coyle, who ends up emigrating and it gets inside the experience of being an Irish person in that particular period of time, the 1830s, going across to America on what, what were, you know, they weren't called the famine ships at that point, but they weren't far off in terms of the experience one would have on these ships. And he goes to work uh, in, uh, uh, at a place called Malvern in Pennsylvania, digging a, a, a railroad. And, you know, that book has a kind of a very serious Gothic villain called Fowler, who's uh, following him at all points through the story. Um and, you know, it was also built upon a part of a true story, which is uh, in the news even here right in Ireland right now, because the, um, you know, it's believed that 57 Irish men were murdered by vigilantes in Pennsylvania. And that's that's um, uh, 
that's a story that crops up in the book that there was Asiatic cholera was spreading across the United States. And the theory is that these Irish workers who may, some of them may have been sick were murdered en masse um, to prevent the cholera spreading and that they were buried in a mass grave and the story then was covered up. So that was kind of the genesis for me for that book. And um, that's where the, the the kind of the fate of Col Coyle on this, again, another big kind of epic uh, story out of Ireland, his kind of fate becomes entwined in, in, in that world. Um, and that was that was that story. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your your writing, uh, writing style, maybe habits. But, you know, so many of the reviews of, of your book and articles have, including our own, have uh, referred to your writing as lyrical, poetic. Um, and and I, I can think of other Irish writers who has whose writing has been described the same way. Anne Enright, Edna O'Brien, Colm Tobin. Um, is, is there something about... Uh, uh, Irish being Irish that that uh, and you'd even mentioned earlier in the interview about turning prose or, or writing something lyrically. You know, there's possibly something in the water here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's certainly something in the language. You know, the 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 English, the modern English we speak is built upon. Uh, a lot of Gaelic constructions. They call it Hiberno-English. And there's a kind of musicality, I think, really buried deep in the language from these re sometimes reverse constructions and strange grammatical arrangements of our English. Um, it's, it's difficult to answer. There's definitely a sense of implicit freedom in, in the way Irish people take to the English language uh, that might not be found so quickly in the UK, in the, you know, in, in England, for example. Irish writers feel free to use the English language uh, much, I, I think, with an enormous sense of freedom. And, and you know, we you, you grew up with Yeats, you grew up with Joyce, and these are two writers who are extremely important to me, writers who have profound music in their writing. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, it's it's not conscious for me. Um, I'm just, I just seek uh, for two things in my writing, that, that what I write is truthful and that it has uh, a kind of, an aesthetic to it that it is beautiful and that, that that I'm not I don't deliberately make something musical it's just this is this is how it arrives and um yeah it's interesting because especially for critics in in the United States or you know in other countries this is something that they find very arresting that they gets talked about is is this you know the musicality in in the language and uh yeah it, it's a it's a it's a it, it is a unique Irish thing well, I completely see about what you're saying about the Gaelic uh, as being kind of uh, musical uh, in itself, um, and that's kind of what's you know at the at the bottom of the uh, you know the, the the basis of the Irish uh, uh, English. Yeah, I mean, I, I was listening to um, uh, a, la a lady walking down the street talking uh, to another man who she stopped, and she said to him, "Now, this guy had a tan." And she said, were you lashing the sunbeds out of it? And that was her way of saying, were you using the sunbeds too much? <laughs> and well, how how beautiful that sentence is. And it's so uniquely Dublin and uniquely Irish. And, you know, we have no trouble understanding that. But I think, you know, if she'd said that to somebody, you know, in London, for example, she would just get a strange look. And that's, you know, th th there is, there just is that, is that kind of strangeness in, in, in the way we, you know, sometimes in the way we speak. 
just looking back, we've talked about the the the, the style of writing. You yourself are a film critic. I I, I used to be. Yeah, I, ah. I hung up the uh, the film critic uh, uh, thing a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, I was a film critic for a, a, a good many years for a newspaper here in Ireland. Uh, do you look at your own, do you approach your own writing and see how how it feels as a cinema? You know, it's. Uh, Cinema is a very powerful influence, uh, you know. But as much as 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 music is, when I write, you know, I write and I listen to. Uh, I'm very influenced by jazz. I listen to a lot of jazz. I'm very influenced by painting, um, and so it all feeds its way in. And uh, you know, and I just kind of, you know, I, I I let it kind of arrive on the page through all these different these different mediums. But film is very uh, film was. I have a very visual imagination. So when I write, I do see things as if there was, you know, uh, a camera there. And, you know, I have spent a large part of my life thinking seriously about film and writing about it seriously. So that has to have had an, that has to have had an influence, uh, on, on, on the books and the writing. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I very deliberately make the writing visual. You know, I, I want the reader when they, uh, to, to see these, to see what's unfolding so clearly. That they can't escape what they're reading, that they feel close as possible to what they're reading. I like that idea of kind of almost total immersion. That there's no room for thinking something could be something else. That everything is perfectly delineated, everything is articulated, and that the reader can summon everything that they're reading um, in a very to get a very strong visual picture. And I, I think that they're important things in good writing, and I, I seek to do them. And yeah, I think cinema has helped to articulate those particular um, those particular qualities that I admire in writing. We've been talking with Paul Lynch. You can find his novel Grace in stores right now. Paul, thanks so much for talking with us. Great pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about Canadian bookseller Indigo and its interest in the U.S., so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Rose Fox is away this week. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is going to talk to us about Canadian bookseller Indigo and a possible move into the U.S. market. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. So, Jim, this is Canada's biggest bookstore chain, and uh, they're looking uh, south of the border. What's going on? And well, we think that's the case. Uh, we have a pretty good authority from one of our reporters who was up there uh, last week that, you know, the talk in Canadian publishing circles is that Indigo is, in fact, looking to um, to open its first store in the United States sometimes next year. So that would be a development that I'm sure all uh, all book publishers in the United States would welcome. So uh, tell us a little bit about Indigo. Um, what's their size, and uh, um, what, where would they move if they, you know, where would they look for opportunities? I imagine the metropolitan areas. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's one of the guesses. That's one of the things we're less sure about, but we're thinking in the New York metropolitan area. But you know, Indigo, you know, known as Indigo Books and Music for a long time, it is, you know, went over a billion dollars in sales. Uh, Last year, well, their fiscal year just ended in April, so, and their fiscal 2017 year. So that was a milestone they were happy about. Um, they've, they've been profitable for a couple of years in a row now, um, after having some tough times, you know, after the recession, like, like everybody else. 
So, you know, they're they're on you know firm firm financial ground and you know looking to to expand into other areas. So what makes them a little bit different if there is anything than say Barnes and Noble or uh it previously Borders? Um well, you know, they're owned by Heather Weizman, um, even though they're a publicly traded company. So she's a very uh, active owner. And one of the things they did early in 2016 was uh, design this thing they call the cultural department store. And, you know, it, it does include some of the things that Barnes & Noble has done here, you know, more toys and educational games, that sort of thing. But it has more what they call like home uh home merchandise more paper even like some fashion accessories um and that that did very well for them so they are they've expanded it to four other stores so far and they're expecting to put put the whole chain in that sort of cultural department store model so obviously they've looked at US markets uh uh book interest and and uh, you know obviously they they feel that there's uh, uh maybe a void that they can fill here. Well, uh you know, we talked about that Amazon could be the fourth largest chain <laughs> bookstore chain <laughs> by the end of the year. I think we mentioned that sometime in the spring and that would be with 13 stores. So, um I think it does Indicate that uh, there are there are there are opportunities in the United States. I mean, we all heard the stories about you know the Bronx, for instance. You know, doesn't have a bookstore, and there's that that woman is uh, close to to raising the funds to start it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then not that long ago, I don't think Queens had a bookstore. <laughs> so right. there are you know, large metropolitan areas that uh, you know could use a bookstore. So I think Indigo is is on the lookout to. Uh, to see what they can find. So it looks like this is a story that's developing. Uh, more info, I'm sure, will be coming in this week. And, uh, and I don't know uh, about this week. Okay, maybe next week. <laughs> but the, best, the best news we have is that they didn't they didn't deny that it's happening, but they didn't, okay, they didn't say it was happening either. So, um, but yeah, I would be surprised if it didn't happen. I mean, they you know they have about 212 stores. Um, and they actually, you know, that's up one from from last year. And you know, I don't like to do too much comparison with Barnes and Noble, but Barnes and Noble has, you know, been closing stores and will probably have a net loss of about ten. So the fact that Indigo has maintained its store base and you know has actually done very well in raising sales. Again, not to compare too much to Barnes and Noble, Barnes and Noble right. sales have been going down. Um, and one of the more impressive things with Indigo is that the comparable store sales have been rising. Um, you know, in the superstores, they're up almost 3%, you know, and that's really a, a sign that lots of people who analyze uh, retailers look at because, you know, if the stores at, uh, if the sales at the stores who are already operating are going up, you know, that's a good sign rather than just relying on trying to expand and open new stores, which, you know, it can be a tougher, tougher thing to do. And how might independent booksellers here in the U.S. feel about this? I'm sure they'll keep an eye on it. All right. <laughs> well, Jim, thanks so much for talking with us. Uh, anytime. And now a final word from our sponsors. 
Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. And we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 